Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my good buddy, Ben White, who's covered the sport since Martin Truex Jr. was learning how to walk. We're going to discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years, like famous races, moments, drivers, and cars. You're going to learn all about that. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you will ever hear. So to kick things off, Ben, I know it's episode six. Um, we got a lot to discuss, but the first thing I wanted to bring up was, you know, we're obviously getting ready for the Daytona 500 coming up. Everybody's really excited about it. They want to know who's going to bring home the hardware for the Great American Race. But on the subject of hardware, um, this past Monday, my buddy Ben was given the prestigious Joe Littlejohn Award for service to the National Motorsports Press Association. That's NMPA. If you're in, uh, if you're part of the group, huge honor, and we are all so proud of you, man. Very deserving. Uh, iconic sponsors like Coca-Cola, Sprint, Gatorade, R.J. Reynolds, and Union Seventy Six have won it, as well as many iconic people in the sport. Ben, I don't know if you won a bunch of races in your driving career, but that's got to be a pretty special moment for you to receive that award. Well, it is, Aaron, and I was very surprised when I received word from Reed Spencer, the current NMPA president, to to tell me that I had been given the award. I'm telling you, I was speechless when he called, and it, <laughs> it is very, very uh, prestigious. And when you put my name in there with what you just said, the Gatorades and, and Coca-Colas and, and all those, and then you have so many iconic people that have won it over the years. I, I'm very, very humbled, and I thank you for, for mentioning that because it's it's truly a, a huge honor in my career. I've been around this 37 years as a race uh, reporter, mm-hmm. 47 if you count the years as a fan, and I, I've won some other things, but i got to tell you, or, or been graciously given some other things, but that one by far is is my championship. I mean, it's a big thing, and I'm truly honored, and I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Oh, no problem. And, and uh, you know, Ben, when I think of iconic American brands, you know, I think of Coca-Cola, I think of Gatorade, and I think of Ben White. I mean, those are three of the top five probably. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, wow. <laughs> to me, I think it's only a, a natural thing that they would present you with this award. I think that's completely fantastic. And some of the people that we're going to talk about today have also won some pretty illustrious things. Uh, the first one, Ben, our driver of the week, is a guy who I've watched race for a long time. He's no longer in the Cup Series, but everybody's listening 
if if even if you're new to sport, you probably know who this guy is. He's a NASCAR Hall of Fame member, uh, just a phenomenal racer at all different types of racetracks. The big thing about this guy, Ben, he had I don't think he had a weakness in any kind of track. He went on the restrictor plate tracks. He could went on the short tracks. He was incredible in the mile and a halfs. He did everything but win a NASCAR Cup Series championship. The driver of the week for episode six of A Lifetime in NASCAR is, drum roll here, Mark Martin. Mark Martin. Yes, sir. And I tell you what, you could not find a more intense race car driver than Mark. And he even has said in the past that that could have been the reason why he didn't win any championships. I think he came close like six times, finished second in, in the point standings in the Cup Series. And he's basically said many times, I was probably too too intense in trying to win it. That's why we didn't win it. And the closest he got to winning the uh, Cup Series championship was 1990. Yep. Uh, And we had touched on this on a previous show where uh, the race in Richmond uh, at the old race. Actually, I believe it was the new race track. It was a new one. Think about it. It was. And. Yeah, and it was five degrees. That was the high that day, five degrees. And it was the coldest day I have ever spent at a racetrack in my life. <laughs> and I'm oh, telling you, man, it was it was brutal. It was bad enough that you'd ha- you'd go outside and stay 10 minutes and have to just come back in because your lungs hurt from, from breathing that such cold air. But the that day, Mark won the race. Then he, they found that he had an illegal spacer below the carburetor right find him took points away i think it was 50 i don't remember the points yeah but it was enough that that's what ended his hopes for winning the 1990 championship and by that was the difference between dale earnhardt and mark at the end was those points and so yeah but talk about an intense racer talk about somebody very very dedicated to his uh his driving drove for many Top teams, mostly uh, Jack Roush, you know, most of the years in NASCAR, but he also drove for, uh, you know, for Hendrick Motorsports yep. and, and DEI and various others. And just an, an incredible race car driver and an incredible person, too. He was so dedicated to not only being good on the racetrack, but also being great with his family as well. Yeah. And, you know, I've got a couple special Mark memories. The first for me is uh, the first race I ever went to was the Winston in 1992 at Charlotte Motor Speedway, or the All Star Race now. Uh, Mark had a, a pretty good car. He had a, he had a solid year in '92. It wasn't quite to 1990 standards of of running what seemed like top two, top three every week. But he was pretty good that year. In this race, however, he has one of the strangest things happen. Uh, under caution, he loses all of his forward gears. The only gear he had was reverse, so he had to drive around the track backwards to get to pit road. And you know, I was four years old and I still vividly remember that there are like Mm. five or six snapshots in time that I remember from that race. None more so than looking out over, you know, sitting on my dad's shoulders, looking out from the front stretch, the back stretch, seeing that huge full moon and you know, the smoke and and the sparks and everything of Davey Allison winning that race. But right up there as well with that last lap is the memory I have of Mark Martin driving his car around backwards. And if you ever seen days of thunder, you know, that came out two years before where Cole Trickle spins out in the Daytona 500 and has to back his car down pit road. That actually happened two years later. So you can't say that they ripped it off, but it really did happen. And I mean, I think for a lot of people who have watched racing a long time, it's probably the only time they've ever seen something like that, where not only does the guy, you know, go in and they work on the car, I'm, I'm pretty sure they got it fixed. And I'm, I think he finished in the lead lap, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, I think so. And and you know, a lot of the Days of Thunder uh, episodes that happened in the in the movie actually really did happen in real life and another one that comes to mind real quick off the beaten path here but was the time when uh benny parsons was going to pit and harry hyde said no we're eating ice cream you're gonna have to wait a few laps <laughs> and that's a true story oh man and yeah. he's like well, what am i supposed to do out here so uh-huh. but yeah there's a lot of the days of thunder scenes that were, were very accurate but yeah. yeah talking about talking about mark though i mean one of the things that uh, that struck me about his determination when he was a teenager, he actually was driving cars around Arkansas and various places, trying to make make a name for himself. And but he was no disrespect to Mark, but he was a little bit short, and yeah. he was twelve, thirteen years old. Right. So that his dad did actually put some phone books in the seat so he could rise up enough to see out the windshield. And he also they did some special blocking on the you know, on the gas pedal and the brakes so he could reach the brakes. And the guy was just awesome in a race car. I remember looking at Stock Car Racing Magazine from from the 70s and seeing this little kid named Mark Martin and had no idea at the time, of course, that he was going to become one of NASCAR's greatest stars. But right. he was just so intense. And you know, something else I ran across the other day, too, I had forgotten. Larry McReynolds was Mark's very first crew chief uh, when he came to the Cup Series. Really? Yeah, and I did not. I'd forgotten that. I talked to Larry a few days, well, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, and uh, he was just telling me that you know people forget that, but I was actually Mark Martin's crew chief at one time, and I huh. totally had forgotten that. But yeah, yeah, that, I, I never knew that. Yeah, and so it's amazing how some of these people's paths have crossed along the way uh, when you go back and look at them. But uh, yeah, just just and I, I want to say this about Mark too. He he was so good behind the wheel of a race car, but he was just. The intensity, I think that I keep going back to that word because when he strapped into anything he was driving, everything went out the window. It was all focus, focus, focus. And he was the kind of guy that if he was eating a cheeseburger, he would focus on eating that cheeseburger. And he couldn't talk to him while he was trying to eat lunch because he was so focused on it. And that's that was the key. He had to succeed. And as I said before, uh, he's even said to me that the reason I didn't win a championship maybe not a little more successful is because i tried too hard at times and uh but hey you can't take anything away from him i mean he won a lot of races and man he was just you know everybody knew he was going to be a threat each time he got on the track ben do you focus when you eat cheeseburgers not that much <laughs> <laughs> hey man i, I have I to like them if there's a lot of wrong. toppings on it i feel like you kind of got to focus right yeah I, I like them a lot but i don't you know <laughs> i can still have a conversation during, there you go during lunch yeah. next time we go i got you I, I had never thought of that way to describe somebody but i think with mark it's very apt so to to piggyback on that um one special mark martin story that i have is uh, the encounter that i had with mark in 2017 so I started in the PR department at Charlotte Motor Speedway in 2016, and my my buddy Quinn Beekwilder, who worked in the marketing department at the time, Quinn has since left, and he is now a professor at Belmont Abbey College in the motorsports management program, doing a phenomenal job there. Um, I actually wound up sort of replacing Quinn. I work in the marketing department in a position now that was very similar to what Quinn did, but when I started, Quinn had this trophy on his desk, and, and you know, Ben, I mean, when you work in the motorsports industry, like... People, you know, if they have something cool, they think you might like it. They just kind of bring it over and they leave it on your desk. At least they did with me. I mean, that's how I got a bunch of posters and all kinds of cool stuff. But Quinn had this trophy on his desk and it said, it said, uh, Nextel All-Star Race Challenge winner, 
2005, Mark Martin. And I was like, man, he must've got like the, you know, the, the replica trophy or whatever. Um, so I always thought that was really cool, but I never really, you know, bothered to ask. Um, so about a year goes by and finally I, I you know, I want to, I walk by Quinn and I'm like, all right, so I got to know how, where'd you get that trophy? And he's like, well, uh, you know, somebody else who worked here, you know, was, was on their desk and I thought it was cool. So I put it on my desk and I was like, huh, okay. So I ended up doing a program story for the Coca-Cola 600 on Mark Martin and to speak of his focus, Ben, to keep to keep myself on on topic here, he was able to tell me all the spring rates for his winning Bush Series cars from 25 years before that, like it was wow. nothing. I mean, just just rattling them off. I mean, and you know, I I think I understood most of it, but you know, to to his you know to his credit, he has an incredible memory even now. So we're talking about that, and I'm like, Mark, uh, there's a guy I work with here he's got a trophy with your name on it from the 2005 all-star race. Um, you know, you have that, right? So this is like our, our this must be like our, our personal copy. And he's like, no, I don't have that. And so I kind of laughed and I was like, you, you're, you're not serious, right? Like you really, you don't have the trophy from that race. He's like, no, like we, we left the track and we had this, you know, had this party after we won, <laughs> you know, and, and um, I guess nobody ever picked it up. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I have, we have your trophy. <laughs> so, so I figured out a day with Mark and a time where I put this trophy in, and it was in great shape. I mean, literally all I had to do was uh, spray a little bit of cleaner on it, wipe it off, and it looked like it was 2005 all over again. Uh, mm-hmm. It did not smell like beer or champagne or anything. So mm-hmm. I put this, this trophy, and I'm driving down the highway from Charlotte Motor Speedway to Roush Fenway Racing, where at the time in 2017, Mark was an advisor. He had a meeting that day, and so he was in town. And so I'm driving down the highway with the all-star race trophy in a passenger seat, riding shotgun with me. And I'd pull up to Roush Fenway racing, get out and drag this heavy trophy. And it was, it was pretty sizable, this trophy into the shop. And I'm, you know, I'd sit it on the desk and, um, I tell the receptionist, Hey, I've got Mark Martin's all-star race trophy here from 2005. <laughs> I just talked to Mark. He told me to drop it off for him. And she was, you know, kind of confused by that and i was like trust me i I just talked to him i texted him he'll be here in just a second to pick it up she's like all right yeah i understand so then mark came and got it and i'm not sure now if it's i think he said he's going to put it in shop in batesville arkansas i'm not sure if it's there or not but it's definitely not at our desk at charlotte motor speedway unfortunately um what may have been quinn's coolest uh desk thing wound up going back to its rightful owner so i guess for that i feel pretty good um, maybe I'm not as proud of that as I am of, you know, everything I did to influence Jamie McMurray's career, Ben. Oh yeah, but, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this is still, you know, it's maybe top five. I mean, it's cool. Yeah, I, I reunited. Well, I mean, I'm yeah, just I mean, proud. I'm just glad that the receptionist didn't call 911 and have the police come and, <laughs> you know, haul you away and I'd never see you again. Man, but, uh, I really was kind of, you know, I was like, this is going to be really awkward when I get out. I've never been in this building before. She's going to be like, you know, and so it wasn't even like the main shop. You know, like it was yeah. like a, they, they, he, he, I think he told me or somebody told me the code to go through the back. And so I, then I, I go in and I, I drop this off and you know, like a UPS guy just left. And so she's thinking maybe I'm some other delivery guy. And I was, but I wasn't bringing them something for the, the, you know, the team I was bringing Mark a, uh, let's see by then it was a, I think a 12 year old all-star race trophy. So wow. Mark, I'm, I'm very glad. And, and, you know, I've, I've had a chance to talk to Mark several times for stories over the years. Ben, I feel so bad. I didn't know that Larry Mack was Mark's crew chief because I did a story last year about fire safety for NASCAR Pole Position Magazine. And I interviewed Mark, interviewed Larry Mack, 
and I didn't know that they had worked together. You know, I think a lot of people think of them, think of them as rivals from when Mark was yeah. driving the Valvoline car and Larry Mack was calling the shots for Davey Allison and later Ernie Irvin's Texaco Avalon Ford. But yeah, I mean, it, it just goes to show you that uh, on a long enough timeline, a lot of folks in NASCAR, you know, if they were rivals at one point, they end up working together. And uh, and Mark is probably a shining example of that, Ben, because, you know, I bet he hated Hendrick Motorsports throughout the 90s. And then he ends up driving for Hendrick, winning five races in 09 and um, then ends up running his last races, uh, filling in for Tony Stewart in the number 14 car in 2013. So he had an incredible career, uh, but he's only one guy. I mean, he's the main guy when I think of the six car who had a bunch of success in that car. But Ben, you know, I told my Charlotte Motor Speedway story. Now, when you think of the six car, you've got a pretty interesting story and a guy that a lot of people wouldn't say is synonymous with that number, right? Yeah. And uh, I guess we're talking about what Cotton Owens, right? Well, we could be talking about Cotton Owens. We could be talking about a certain seven time Cup Series champion. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Well, (laughs) a lot of people may not know this. And uh, it's, it's something that it's, it's so interesting to me, but back in 1986 at Charlotte Motor Speedway, the great uh, Richard Petty, the king, comes to the speedway. And back in those days, you got to remember, they did not have a lot of cars in their fleets. I mean, today you can go to any cup shop and you can see 12 or 15 cars for each team. And it's yeah. just crazy how many cars are sitting there ready to, to go and, and some degree of, of being finished to go to the next race or whatever. This particular year... Uh, the the Petties just didn't have a lot of cars backed up. And I don't know if – I think they had maybe crashed a few going into the 600. This wasn't a great season. As it turned out, and I was happy to be standing on pit road when this happened. I was just out there. Richard, they were practicing. Richard came off a of turn four. Something happened, blew a tire, whatever, and got into the wall with the 43 Pontiac and damaged it pretty badly. And he was actually knocked unconscious uh, in the crash. And here he is just kind of rolling right about where I am. I was like, Oh wow. Before I could get to him, other crew members, of course, right on Johnny on the spot there yeah. and got him out of the car. Right. As it turned out, they went back and assessed the car's damage and just had too much damage to try to get in the race. And this is like Saturday, I believe before the 600. Uh-huh. And so, uh, there's a team owner, by the name of D.K. Ulrich, who had a number six Chevrolet. It was green on the sides, uh, white on the hood and on the top, and it was number six. And at the end of the day, they made a deal for Richard Petty to drive the number six STP Chevrolet, and it was a lime green with STP decals on the hood and on the back. And he drove the car, and I think it was a mid-pack finish. I believe he had an engine go bad on the car if i'm not mistaken but i mean he and a lot of people's like wow i had no idea he ever drove the six car we know he drove <laughs> well, yeah. the 41 and the 42 and the 43 right. and uh so hey i mean that's just one of those tidbit type stories that i you know until we started talking about the six car i didn't think about it it's like oh yeah i remember richard petty drove the six and i'm like what seriously so yeah he did drive the number six uh chevrolet at the Charlotte Motor Speedway and the 600 in 1986. That's pretty awesome. And I mean, you know, I guess Ben, I mean, he's kind of like the greatest driver to ever drive the six. He just didn't really have all his success with the six, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. For sure. And then I mentioned Cotton Owens, you know, Cotton was a guy who, um, uh, raced some, but very, very good as a race driver. And then he turned his attention to being a team owner. 
But, uh, yeah, Cotton actually won six races. Imagine that, six races in the six car. And then you get uh, others, such as Mark Martin, who won 35 times in the six. David Reagan had one win. Yep. David Pearson won 27 races in driving the six for Cotton Owens and won the 1966 uh, Winston Cup or Grand National Championship that year. And so, yeah, the car, Buddy Baker has won in the car, Charlie Glott's back, Marshall Teague, who is a driver, uh, we're going to tell you a little bit more about uh, later in the show that raced in the late uh, 40s, early 50s. Uh-huh. And also Pete Hamilton also won in the six. And Bobby Allison had a win there. So, yeah, just several drivers have uh, have taken the six to victory lane. But Mark Martin by far is the one that's won the most in the car. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think about Bobby Allison – I'm not sure there's a number Bobby Allison didn't win in. I mean, he's probably <laughs> right. he probably won in more car numbers than zero to ninety nine. I mean, dude, probably if he ever drove a number X, he probably won it um, or won in it. Yeah, that's something to research. That might be kind of fun to look at because he drove a lot of cars. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I, there was this video of racing crashes that I had, and one of them was at Langhorn Pennsylvania Speedway. It was this really dangerous track. Uh, that was a dirt track in like the '40s and '50s, and they showed this crash. Um, a bunch of people wrecking. I mean, they were driving you know, these tiny old cars that were literally stock cars then. But the thing that I remember about that, and I, I probably last watched this video, been 27 years ago, but the thing I remember was one of the cars that zooms by and this grainy footage, is just it just has X on the side of it. And I thought that was so cool um, mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody's done that since. And, um, you know, in the Cup Series, I, I don't know that, uh, that that those guys would probably want you to drive a number X, but... I mean, I'll say this, if they'd let me do it in like a test session or something, I think that'd be pretty cool to have that, you know, I mean, yeah, so some guys in test sessions put like skulls and crossbones in their car. No, I want, I don't even want a number on mine. I want to, you know, I'll, I'll be like Prince, just give me a symbol on it. I think that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of times when these guys would go to short tracks, they would show up from various places and they might be three guys who had number 12, for instance. Yeah. So you see some guy maybe in, in Bobby's case, he did this too. He put a three in front of his cause his birthday is December 3rd. Mm-hmm. So he drove, he wrote, drove three twelve for a lot of years on the short tracks. Huh. And then there would be other times when you would have a guy show up and like I said, they, they've all got the number 12. So they block out a one or pull off a two or put an X beside some way to, to distinguish that we don't have three cars with a number 12 in the race. We've got to come up with something else. But yeah, Bobby did run number three twelve for many years, uh, as, as a modified driver and, uh, that, and it came from his birthday being December 3rd, 1937. That's so a, there you go. That's awesome. Uh, so, as crazy as it is to have these ideas of putting, you know, you're out in left field having these these car numbers or becoming letters or something. Man, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's so cool that Bobby had a three digit number. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, maybe you can tell me how to pronounce this guy's name. Carl Kikafer. Kikafer. Yeah, Kikafer. Yeah, Kikafer. it's a little okay. hard to say. Yeah, Carl Kikafer. Back in the day when uh, when NASCAR raced on the beach track at Daytona, uh, I think his cars routinely had three three digit numbers. Uh, which which is that's know, correct. Little out, little out in left field. Um, speaking of things that are out, maybe not out in left field, but out of the groove, you might say. Um, I don't know if, if you guys heard the big news this week, but out of the groove, 
launched the Out of the Groove Viewers Weekly Viewers Guide on Thursday. Um, so to give you guys a little bit of a background on what that is, uh, I wanted to bring this up, Ben. think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. We are part of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network, a lifetime of NASCAR is, that is. And one of the big things that they rolled out this week was the Out of the Groove Viewers Guide uh, on Thursday. Had a bunch of people talking. We posted a tweet about it on social media. Everybody's really excited about it. I was I was very pleased by the uh, by the social media response, and I, I think a lot of folks are, are really excited about it. Um, to that point, Ben, you really need to get on Twitter so you can interact yeah. with these people and they can heckle you know you and me about what sure. we're saying right now. Um, but this, so this weekly viewers guide it's really cool. Uh, if you're new to it, and all of us are right now. The Out of the Groove Weekly Viewer's Guide. It's this free interactive digital magazine. It's got all kinds of weekly NASCAR content like videos, stories, cool pictures, all kinds of stuff. And the best thing about it, Ben, it's one of the best words you can hear. It's it's free. You you can subscribe right now at polepositionmag.com. That's www.polposition, as in winning the poll, mag, as in magazine.com, polepositionmag.com. Once you sign up, you get the viewer's guide delivered to your email inbox every Friday. So hit them up. You're going to get all the latest news, views, and topics related to NASCAR. And while you're there, check out the preview edition we just released on Thursday. Ben, there's a lot of cool stuff in there, including a column by yours truly on who I think might surprise some people in the Cup Series this season. Uh, Again, if you want to check that out, hit it up polepositionmag.com. It's going to be really cool. Honestly, the first time I opened this up, I was like, I don't even. I'm kind of like figuring out what this is. It was like a, I'm literally turning pages digitally, but it's, everything's not a page. Some of it's a video. It's got YouTube videos. It's got pictures. It's got stories and columns and features and rankings and stats, man. It's, it is a one-stop shop for all kinds of NASCAR stuff. So it's really cool. It's free. I love it. Uh, Check out the column that I wrote on a guy who I think is going to, he's going to surprise some people. And not just that, I think he might win, his uh, first Daytona 500 coming up. So I guess that's a good time, Ben, to transition into our track of the week this week. Let's hope nobody gets too far out of the groove, but they often do. It's Daytona International Speedway. Uh, so much history at this place. Even before Carl Kiefer, if you guys are want to look him up, his name was Carl, C-A-R-L-K-I-E-K-H-A-F-E-R. I think that's right, Ben. I... I I make a point not to like look those things up. So if somebody calls me out on it and I'm wrong, feel free to tell me. But I think I got it right. Yeah, Carl yeah, Kiefer right. back in the day, yeah. they had some really fast cars. This guy came into the sport with a ton of money, um, not unlike some of the car owners now, which is you know obviously you got to have a lot of money to go fast. Kyle Busch says money buys speed. He's right. There's been a whole lot of people who have bought speed, but not a whole lot of people who have brought speed through the years at Daytona. So, Ben, tell me a couple guys that you think are are some of the greatest drivers to race at Daytona and some of your favorite moments from uh, from that awesome facility. Sure. Well, first, uh, I want to say this too. What what you were just talking about uh, the out of the groove and the and the platform that's being developed. I'm telling you guys, this thing is is just great you got to go in there and you got to look at it because it gives you so much information about what we all love nascar right and stock car racing and and the idea is to take the fan where they can't go otherwise and that's what we're trying to do on all these platforms and i'm telling you i'm honored to be a part of it and i think 
if you just go on there and take check it out, you're going to be amazed at all that's there and how much fun we can all have, those of us talking about racing, and, of course, the, those listening to us and the interaction that we can have. And I just think it's an awesome uh, situation that is being developed, and it's just getting better and better every week. Yeah, I think that's but, really uh, cool. And, and Ben, to, 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 to kind of build on that, to me, you know, I, I, was a, I was a kid when I was seven, eight, nine years old. I got subscriptions to uh, Winston Cup Scene, the weekly newspaper, um, and which later became NASCAR Scene. To me, this is kind of like a modernized version of it, right? So, like in mm-hmm. Winston Cup Scene, the thing that I liked was you had those big pictures in the back highlighting a Cup driver, highlighting a Bush Series driver. I actually still have one of Dale Jr. when um, the paper highlighted him before he even had a full time Bush Series ride. He was driving a thirty one car. I, I kept that issue, but I mean, it was like feature stories. It was talking about trends within the sport. It had, you know, race results, stats, all kinds of stuff. This, like 25 years later to me, is like the logical evolution of what I think, you know, this media should look like because it's got everything. It really is like you're going into a mall of NASCAR content because you got videos. Our podcast is on there so you can listen to us. It's also got the... uh, the NASCAR Weekly Podcast in WP with some fantastic guys. Those guys have been doing it a little bit longer than us. So you got to go check them out if you haven't already, too. Um, but it's got so much stuff. It's got podcasts. It's got videos, pictures, columns, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, you know, love to see you guys check that out, polepositionmag.com. Uh, right. Let us know what you think about that. But also, Ben, back to this track of the week, um, yep. transitioning from something that is completely new in this uh, – weekly digital viewers guide to something that is on the older side, I guess, is, uh, is Daytona international speedway. And, and, and Ben, what's your favorite memory of Daytona? If you had to pick well, one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I tell you the honest truth, I watched a lot of those Daytona races growing up and, was, you know, back in the day when I was growing up, you didn't get the whole race to start with. You'd watch, uh, you know, ABC wild world of sports and yeah. you get snippets of the race. But and then as time went on, namely 1979 was the first time they showed the full green flag, flag to flag coverage of the the 1979 Daytona 500. That's yeah. the one Bobby Allison, Kelly Arbor, Donnie Allison get in the fight and bring a lot of people to the fold of NASCAR that didn't know what NASCAR was because it had so much national media attention after that. Yep. But to answer your question. Uh, many races that I saw, uh, Richard Petty went down there and just seemed like he was the master at, at 2.5 mile, uh, oval, that huge, huge super speedway. And he even told me once, he said, you know what? I said, I saw the thing for the first time and my mouth dropped. It's like, this thing is huge. And that was 1959 when it opened. Yeah. And actually the track opened about mid February to 6,500 fans just to come see it. Uh, but, uh, it, that was, a some of his races, obviously. And the one, I guess the most memorable for memorable for me, Bobby Allison, Davy Allison, 1988 was the father son duo father wins over son in the 88, 500. Were you there and for that, that one? Awesome. What? Were you there for that race? Uh, no, I was not for that one. Okay. No, it wasn't, but, nope. uh, I wish I would have, but I've <laughs> seen the thing a thousand times. And yeah. uh, that was the day that Richard Petty flipped so badly. Fortunately, he only had a broken ankle and a couple of minor injuries, but it did look really bad. But I want to give you a quick rundown on Daytona if I could, just as to how the thing came into existence. And I Ben, you're a Joe brief. Littlejohn award winner. You can do whatever you want, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, at least for today, right? That's right. But, uh, yeah, what happened was 1954, Bill France 
uh, senior announced we're not going to race on the beach anymore. And that was a what's called the, ra- the uh, road and beach course. It's like uh, you know a good sized track that in- involved uh, Highway A1A on part of it, and then the beach on the other part. It's like th- almost four miles. It was a pretty good sized track. And half the time they'd race on the beach, but they had to race at certain times because the tide would come in and mess up the track. So they had to time it around the tides of the ocean. And so that got to be problematic at times. So they ended up building Daytona International Speedway. They say it's going to be open in 1955. Go ahead, buy your tickets. Everything's going to be great. Okay. (laughs) So what happens is, you know, politics, uh, zoning, uh, funding, you name it, the problems came. Right. So it didn't actually open until 1959, and it was a massive racetrack. And everyone who came there to race at the track, all of them said, we're a little bit afraid of this place. Because you got to think back, 1950, uh, the Darlington Raceway was built, and that was 1.366 miles in length. Egg-shaped. Uh, actually, a 1.25 mile in the in the beginning of the track, and then they extended it to 1366. But that's the biggest thing they've ever raced on. Yeah. Okay, so they get to Daytona. This thing is huge, two and a half miles. Not sure if the tires would hold up. Almost not sure twice as big things. as Darlington in terms yeah. of length. And and you know what? Even if when you go through the tunnel there, and you look at it today, I mean, it's just you think to yourself, how in the world? This thing is huge. So yeah. you think back on the cars of the time, the tires of the time. I mean, man, you had to really be brave to get out there and race on this thing. And uh, it, as it turned out, uh, it's become one of the most iconic racetracks in NASCAR history. And not only NASCAR history, but others, you know, like the 24 Hours of Daytona and other sports car events have been held there. There was actually Indy cars that had raced there from time to time. Uh-huh. So, But there's here's one track fact, though, that a lot of people don't know. There's one who was the person who was black flagged for the first time on Daytona's surface in 1959 would you happen to know who it was and why no but if he was racing in 1959 i'd say it was probably kurt bush well yeah (laughs) actually there was a gentleman by the name of herman beam who was black flagged and he he was black flagged because he was so excited to get on the racetrack he forgot his helmet and they had to bring him back in to get his helmet in the garage area. Which so they were basically like hats at that time. I mean, they, you know, they're yeah. so rudimentary compared to what these guys wear now. Right. It was sort of, if you can imagine, it was sort of like a flower pot with leather straps. And that's the way it's been described to me. And then later, about that same year, though, 1959 is when they started building the, what you see today is a modern type shell type helmet. But yeah. prior to that, it was one of those... Uh, kind of a shell on the top, leather on the bottom kind of things. Yep. But but 59, 58, 59 is when they started uh, coming up with a better, you know, full full head shaped type helmet. So Did, did they have uh did they have all those restaurants across the street from the racetrack then too? Like did everybody go to PF Chains in 1959? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there was there was not a whole lot around the thing there. Uh, there is now uh, though, know, man. Yeah, it was. It's kind of out there a little bit, but uh, of course, it's grown up quite a bit. But Daytona is such a neat track, and oh my gosh, I mean, it's one of those tracks that I always enjoyed going to. I have to admit, this year I'm not going to the 500 for the first time in like 29 years. Wow, it's because of, it's because of COVID, right? The, uh, COVID restrictions, and yeah, you know, I just decided. Uh, 
probably best to stay home. I have a an in, my father-in-law's 92 and my mother-in-law's 88. We're just trying to be very careful to not do anything to put them in danger. But, totally respect that. Yeah. And so this year I'm just going to be watching from home and, and working from home. And uh, so we'll go from there. But yeah, I just love Daytona. It's an awesome racetrack. I first went when I was 15. I think I said recently in a previous uh, episode that my dad won a raffle and we got to go to uh, mm-hmm. or a drawing. Is a drawing or a drawing and a raffle the same thing? Like we didn't like, I don't think we bought a raffle ticket. So maybe I just misspoke. We won a drawing, whatever it was. We got to go to Daytona in July of 03. It was a ton of fun. Been a couple of times since then, including to uh, the Rolex 24 at Daytona in 2018 uh, to see Fernando Alonso race and among a bunch of other, you know, big name racing legends. But uh, to me, Ben, I want to go back to something you were talking about a minute ago, the 1988 Daytona 500. So I have no recollection of this race because I was a couple months old, but it's really special to me because, so this race, it was the first one, it was the first points race that was ran after my, after I was born. And, uh, you know, I've said before that my whole family got me into racing as, as has been the case with a lot of people. Um, but when I was a couple months old, we went to my grandparents' house in Lincolnton, North Carolina, which is about 45 minutes, hour from Charlotte, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we watched this race, and my great-grandmother was was there with me, um, my parents and my grandparents, and I think my uncle was too. Um, so it was this really special thing for my whole family that we got to experience this. It was on Valentine's Day, 1988, was when they did this race. And Ben, my great-grandmother, she passed away in November of that year, uh, didn't have much of an interest in racing. But she was, you know, kind of caught up in the pomp and circumstance of the Daytona 500, this being the first and biggest race of the year, right? So if the race is unfolding, and I don't know if it was halfway, two-thirds of the way through the race, maybe it was even before the race started, she told my, she turned to my mom and she's like, I'd like to see the, that father and son battle it out. And, <laughs> oh, you know, cool. and that's exactly what happened. You had Bobby passing Davey in the closing laps and Bobby wins. Davey finishes second. It was a special day. It was on Valentine's Day. Uh, my mom likes to tell the story. I mean, why wouldn't you? Like, that's so cool that somebody had very little interest in racing. Basically, it was like, I think this would be cool. And exactly that happened. And uh, yeah, it, oh, sorry, go ahead. it was. No, I'm sorry. It was, it was just an, a phenomenal day because, you know, Bobby went down to Daytona that year and pretty much dominated everything he yeah. had, he knew he had a fast car davy was kind of in the first uh couple years with with rob what what ended up being actually it was harry Renner was the team owner in 88 and robert yates bought the team at the end of 89 uh, or at the beginning of 89 excuse me and so uh yeah it was just bobby's an old crusty veteran been there a long time Davey's building his career and it was just so I guess heartwarming is the word I want to say it's like man that's cool father and son out there racing against each other and I know there are a lot of fathers out there thinking how cool would it be if I had my son on my back bumper racing me or whatever and you know Davey I remember his comment after the race was he said I just you know I couldn't I couldn't get to him and uh, I tried my best to get to him he was too he was too strong he was too strong and then I remember in Victory Lane how, you know, Bobby and Davey would pick on each other all the time. And there's yeah. photos of, you know, Bobby holding Davey's coat, pouring a, a Miller beer over his head. <laughs> it's just cool. Yeah. I mean, that kind of family relationship and, you know, how they had raced together so many times. And then, sadly, in June 
June 19th, 1988, the day that Bobby had that terrible crash at Daytona, uh, excuse me, Pocono. Yeah. And that ended his career. And of course, it changed everything. And then we, at last, fate would have it, we lost Davey on July 13th of 1993. So I'm telling you, it was just such a glorious day to see father and son do so well in the biggest NASCAR race on earth. And it was just cool to watch. Absolutely. And, and Ben, I think, uh, you know, I think we're going to be in for a pretty special Daytona 500 this year. And you know what gives me that feeling? What's that? So this 1988 Daytona 500 we're talking about, it happened on Valentine's Day and this really incredible finish. Uh, I think the most recent one that happened on Valentine's Day was 2010 when you had Jamie McMurray winning oh, the Daytona yeah. 500. Dale Jr. made that incredible run from 17th to 2nd in the last few laps. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen at Daytona. Um, just an absolutely classic race. The track broke uh, apart a couple times. It took a long time. It was like the six hours of Daytona, but it was an incredible finish. It was worth it to, to witness that result at the end. Dale Jr.'s charge, Jamie Mack winning the race. I didn't have any hand in that. That one, I don't think. Um, so that one's all Jamie. Props to you, man. Um, but, you know, this year's 500 also is on Valentine's Day, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I think so. And I, my wife, Eva, she's extremely happy with the fact that, A, I'm not going to Daytona this time for the fact that Valentine's Day, I'll be here yeah. <laughs> for the first time in decades. And usually I would always be a good husband and I would always make sure that some roses got sent to the house because I was always in Daytona. You know, used to, you'd be there for two weeks or yeah, longer. Absolutely. And, um, so that was the most important thing to do is make sure that she was remembered on that day. But this time, though, it's going to be nice to be home for Valentine's Day. And, yes, I'll have some notepads uh, in my lap and my laptop watching it working the race from home. But at least I'm home. And that's that's the, the consolation. I'd love to be there. But, hey, if you can't be there, home's a good place. Absolutely. I think a lot of people agree with you, uh, especially right now. Um, but, you know, Ben, uh, another special Daytona 500 to me. It's the first one I remember. It's our race of the week this week. It's actually the first. Uh, it's the first Daytona 500 I remember, and it also happened on Valentine's Day. Hmm. The race of the week this week is the 1993 Daytona 500, the Great American Race that year. It was the Dale and Dale Show between Dale Jarrett and Dale Earnhardt. DJ comes uh, comes up and wins the race. It was only the second win of his Cup Series career. There was so many storylines from that race, Ben. I mean, it was like you had an abundance of riches. And I'll tell you what's funny is that the the, the race before that was the Hooters 500. It was Richard Petty's last race. It was Jeff mm. Gordon's first race. Good so then point. you come in here, you're off You know this incredible season-ending race at the end of 92. NASCAR is riding a wave of momentum the size of a typhoon. And they start off the Daytona 500. They start off Speed Weeks. And this this Gordon guy, this Jeff Gordon guy, and this you know weird looking rainbow car wins his 125 mile qualifying race uh, in his first try. He's running one cup race and he wins that. That was a huge accomplishment. It had a lot of mm-hmm. people really you know stirring, thinking, well, all right, this guy's in a Hendrick car, and you know they're pretty darn good. That already won two Daytona 500s to that point with uh, Jeff Bodine in '86 and Daryl Waltrip in '89. It was like this guy could really win, and he he does. You know he was just phenomenal all speed weeks. Dale Earnhardt, of course, you know, had done everything but win the 500. Unfortunately, Dale finished second again. But aside from Jeff, who had a great run, aside from Dale, who very well could have won it, 
And, you know, even even DJ, there, there's so much more. To me, Ben, one of the coolest things. So I remember this race. I remember getting up in the morning. I was five years old. This was also the first time I had ever tried um, mint chocolate chip Hershey Kisses. And I don't know why in the world I remember that. But <laughs> I remember having one before the race started. I, I, I don't know, man. I have a weird memory. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not okay. plugging them, but it's just something I remember. I remember that. I remember watching all of the, the intro for this race. Uh, it was Davey Allison's last 500, unfortunately. It was Alan Quickie's last 500, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, it was on Valentine's Day. It was the first time we didn't have the 43 car in a race in forever, Ben. Well, actually, I take mm-hmm. that back, Ben. It was the first time we hadn't had a 43 car since 88 or 89. Before that, it was the when Richard drove the 6. So it, it's still a, it had been a little while. Rick mm-hmm. Wilson's driving a 44 car. Al Unser Jr., the IndyCar guy I've always liked. Big little Al fan here. Um, it makes his only cup start, also driving for Rick Hendrick. There was so much going on in that race. Uh, what are some things that you remember from it? Oh, well, the one thing that comes to mind when you say 1993 is how Kyle Petty won the pole, and he, he was lightning fast, and his uh, Sabco Pontiac, which was Felix Sabatis on the car, had Mellow Yellow on the car, number 42, and lightning fast, and all he had to do is get 200 laps under his belt, and he was probably going to be – if not the winner, a contender. You think so? And yeah, I think so. He was really strong. And so we get into the race and there's a caution that comes out and Bobby Hillen tried to not get into Kyle, but Kyle had some, I mean, I, I think Bobby has some brake issues. It was, they were the, not the two cars that were initially in the, in the, that caused the caution. It was someone else. I and, think it was Dale and little Al, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was, you're right. I think it was. And, it was a situation to where they were doing had already crossed the line or something there there 35 40 miles an hour and bobby got into kyle and and took him out of the race and i just remember the two of them trying to discuss it or let's put it this way <laughs> uh, uh, yeah hillen was trying to discuss it richard i mean kyle petty didn't want to discuss it and he kept flipping his visor down and i don't want to talk about it and, and he's like he kept after him and after him he's like look i don't want to talk about it yeah. so it's very heated that had it come out but the the idea that uh you know dale jarrett wins the race ned jarrett calls the final lap and, De- and ned said later he said i was told by the producers uh of the broadcast that if for whatever reason that scenario came down, he told they told all their other announcers mm-hmm. that okay, if it comes down to this, Ned's going to call a final lap, and it's like yeah, right, sure, okay, whatever, and and it developed and it happened, and you know you brought up a point I didn't realize that that was a, a, a Valentine's race also, so wow, you know we've had some really interesting races at Daytona on Valentine's Day, so yeah, you got a good point. There might be something incredible that happens this time, maybe a first time winner. We'll see. Yeah, and and Ben, just to to you know to illustrate how strange it was that that happened that Ned Jarrett got to you know bring it to the inside. Dale, don't let him get down there. He's gonna make it. Dale Jarrett's gonna win the Daytona 500. That's yeah. That's my my Ned Jarrett impression. There you go. You did good. It's pretty close. <laughs> well, you know, I was born in Catawba County, the same place as Ned and Dale, so maybe there's something in the water. But um, yeah. So you know, to underscore how big of an upset that was, though, Ben. Yeah, I think. You are absolutely right. That wound up being Kyle Petty's best chance at winning the Daytona 500. I think no question. It was it was one of Dale's best chances. He wound up getting it done. Dale Earnhardt, that is, uh, five years later. But 
going into that, you know, there was no reason for those producers to ever think Dale Jarrett is going to be in position to win this race. He was in his second year with Joe Gibbs Racing. They won exactly zero races the year before that. DJ had one career win. It was in a photo finish at Michigan in 91 with Davey Allison. But they they didn't have, you know, JGR was a new team. They, They didn't have the resume they have now. Now it's like, you know, well, if a JGR car doesn't win the Daytona 500, particularly if it's not Denny Hamlin, it's like, well, what's the problem here, guys? At that time, though, Ben, nobody expected Dale Jarrett to be a contender in that race. He, He ends up winning it. Not only that, he ends up having a really good year. And I think for, for the better part of, you know, the spring and summer, he was second to, to Dale Earnhardt in the, the cup championship standing. So it was it really set off a year. And and it'll do that, Ben. How many times have we seen somebody, even recently, win the Daytona five hundred and then they just ride that wave, you know, for weeks and, and those weeks become months and, and one great race can really impact your season so well and and you know i think we've seen that with denny hamlin the last couple years denny won in the last two 500s and you just kind of ride that wave yeah you could say on one hand well if they're good enough to win the 500 sure they're good enough to win other races but i think there's something there ben that if you win that race i think Mm -hmm. there's that momentum that excitement that genuine feeling you have that you know what we're one for one this year. Let's go get some more. I think that's why so many times you see the Daytona 500 winner end up winning more races. Yeah, I think so too. And I think what happens with the Daytona 500 win, it takes that monkey off your back as far as trying to uh, win a race to get in the playoffs. I mean, think about that a minute. If you're yeah. a winner going in, it takes a tremendous amount of pressure off being able to say, we've already got a, a victory in, in our pocket. We're okay. We we can you know, we can relax a little bit, but also when you win a Daytona 500, it's something that you carry the rest of your life. If you didn't win another race, such as a Trevor Bame, for instance, he could yep. always say, I won a Daytona 500. And, you know, talking about Ned, I mean, he, his, his, uh, response to the producer's thoughts was, yeah, okay, we'll see if that happens. We'll see if that comes down that way. <laughs> Ned I mean, was a true pro. So he didn't, right. He didn't think so. And, and, and no disrespect to Dale Jarrett at all or, or Joe Gibbs racing, but they were brand new. And that's, that speaks even highly for them because think about that. Most times when you have a race team comes into the cup series, which is the premier stock car series in the world. And it's extremely tough to get, uh, to be successful after just a couple of seasons, they come up and win the Daytona 500, the biggest race of the year. Granted, they had some good folks around them, such as Jimmy Maycar, uh, I believe was crew chief that year for them, and who is still, by the way, with Joe Gibbs Racing. But it's just amazing how they put that together. And that was the hype about Joe Gibbs, the former Super Bowl uh, winning coach who comes into NASCAR. A lot of hype there going into it. So, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And, of course, part of the, the side story of that was, once again, this, the 500 slipped away from Dale Earnhardt. Yep. And and it came down to one car position by held by Dale Jarrett to keep Dale Earnhardt out of victory lane again. So it was a 20-year story that finally came together for Dale Earnhardt in 1998. So a lot of those stories that you look back on them, and you're right, there's so many of these races, there's so many sub-stories that are going on, uh, not only the winner of the race, but all the other things that came about that, that made – up that particular race and the 93 daytona 500 was one of those special events for sure i think honestly if you looked i mean if you went down the list of guys who were racing in that 93 daytona 500 you look down the entry list even down the starting lineup 
there were so many sons of legendary drivers. I think if you if you asked a lot of people before that race, I think uh, of the list of sons of famous drivers, who's most likely to win? Dale Earnhardt, Kyle Petty, Davey Allison, maybe even Al Unser Jr., I think. Mm-hmm. People might have said they'd be more likely to win it than Dale Jarrett, just because at that time, Little Al was... There was a discussion whether Little Al was ever going to end up racing NASCAR. He people, you know, he he ran IROC, the International Race of Champions, for a while and was so good in that. I can't remember if it was Mark Martin. I think it was Mark that or Rusty Wallace at one point that said, uh, "Little Al's a, a NASCAR driver. We're just letting him try IndyCar right now." And people anticipated him moving to NASCAR at some point. Unfortunately, it didn't end up happening. He wound up making only one start. It was that 93 Daytona 500 for Rick Hendrick. Um, I think a big part of that was because the year later, Little Al is at Penske, and he wins his second Daytona 500, had an incredible IndyCar season. I think that just made him think, all right, well, maybe I just maybe now is not the right time for me to leave, and it wound up never being the right time, and he didn't end up trying it. But he was another example of somebody, I think some people, because of the equipment he was in and the reputation he had for being this fantastic racer, some people probably thought Little Al had a better shot of winning it than Dale Jarrett did. Yeah, I think I think so, and I think it was a surprise because again, new team, new sponsor, so much to learn as far as getting all the pieces, intricate pieces together. Not only mechanically speaking, but you got to get the personalities and the chemistry together. And yeah, they had a season prior to that, but it was to win the 500 is tough, and you can you can ask anybody. Uh, you know, ask RCR or Richard Childress, ask him. I mean, he would tell yeah. you every year they knew they were in contention. Every year it came down to five to go, and you didn't see smiles in the pits because they just felt like something is going to happen. And, and sure it enough, did. It, it would every time. <laughs> every it time would. it would. And so, yeah, but I mean, it's interesting that you you mentioned uh, the Fort, uh, Valentine's Day because it just you're right sometimes fate has it in such a way where the unthinkable or the unexpected happens in a good way and it's going to be fun to see this race uh, coming up uh, next weekend because i mean you know you've had a few drivers change to different race teams you've had uh, some chemistry that's got to be built among those guys new sponsors coming in here and there but it's always just exciting good grief it's the daytona 500 and i remember growing up we would have to – there's some requirements that were that we had to do in our family. One, in order to watch the NASCAR race, whatever race it was, you had to go to church. If you didn't go to church, you didn't, go, you didn't get to watch the race. So needless to say, at least my mom got me in church for, what, 29, 30, 31 weeks a year? <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> good. I had to watch the race to watch – we would go to church to watch the race. But at our house – the Daytona 500 was big, big news, especially after 79. And then, of course, when it wasn't on television, you could walk into any room in the house and the, and the Daytona 500 or whatever race would be on radios all over the house. You couldn't miss it. Yeah, man. So just an special, special, incredibly special uh, excitement that builds. Uh, and it is, I hate to use the cliche, but it is NASCAR Super Bowl. And it's, it gains a lot of attention uh, and what a great way to start the year. So there you go. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm already excited for it now. And I think it, one of the things that, that adds to the intrigue and excitement of this race is how unpredictable it is, but to, uh, to, to build up on a, a point to, I guess it's to, to back a point that I made earlier about how guys, when they win a Daytona 500, 
it seems like that just catapults their season to being better than it ever was. There are so there are a lot of recent examples of this, Ben. One of them is not super recent, but Derek Cope, when he won the 500 in 1990, in his case, the only time he ever won a race was the 9500, and then in 1990 at Dover. So the only time he had a, a single win in a season, he had multiple wins, and it was after he won the 500. In 2002, Ward Burton wins the Daytona 500. Another surprise. It was also the only year he won multiple cup races. 2010, my man Jamie McMurray wins the Daytona 500. He wins three races, including the Brickyard 400 at Indy and the Bank of America 500 at Charlotte. That was the only year he won multiple races. And then even more recently, people like Dale Earnhardt Jr. had only one win in like five years. And he goes and wins the Daytona 500 and then wins three more races in 2014. Had a phenomenal season. So there is something to be said, I think, that whoever wins this race, be it Denny Hamlin or somebody new, uh, I think they can ride that wave even more so now than in these previous years that I mentioned. Because since 2014, you win this race and it relieves a lot of stress because it locks you into the playoffs, like you said, Ben. So I think we're going to be in for a, a pretty riveting race, I think, from start to finish. And it's going to be really exciting to see who brings it uh, brings it home. Um, but first, we've got the, uh, the Bush Clash. Ben, tell me who you think is going to win the Bush Clash and who you think is going to win the pole and who are going to win the dual races. Oh boy, that's a lot to lot to think about. But I, I'll tell you this: I think the Clash is going to go to Chase Elliott. I think he's really good on the road courses. He's proven that so many times uh, in his short career already. As far as the 125 or 150s, actually now, um, man, that's going to be tough because down at Daytona, unlike some other tracks, so many of these guys are are so equal. Okay, so you got a handful of guys, two or three maybe that that have the power to uh, to win the poll. I mean, man, it's, it's tough. i got to think about that. As far as the 500, hmm, I'm going to go – I'm going to go with Harvick. I, okay. I just – I think I think not getting in the playoffs last year by one point I think was disappointing, but I also believe that they are saying, okay, you know what, we're going to come back this year – we're going to be better than we were last year. We're going to get off to a really good start uh, in in uh, in 2021 because if I my memory is not incorrect, I don't think they did well in the 500 last year, and I think they had some type of problem with engine or something happened. So their their season started off not where they wanted it to be. I think they're going to be prepared to to take the 500. But as far as uh, far as winners of the 150s. Well, it's going to be hard to say. I'm, I gotta, I gotta think about that one. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some food for thought. So here's what I think okay. is going to happen. Yeah. I would not bet against you on the Bush Clash. Uh, Chase Elliott is so good on road courses. They've run one race on the Daytona road course, and Chase outclassed them. So uh, I, I think Chase has the best chance of winning the Clash. But in, in the sake of just wanting to be different and go a different direction. I think Kyle Busch is going to win it because he's so hungry from having a a disappointing year last year that by anybody's standards was not up to the 18 team. He has a new crew chief this year. I think they get things started well uh, by winning the clash. You know, he, he's one of the the three or four guys who I always look to in non-points exhibition races as being somebody who is really tough to beat because they bring that, you know, 
bring me back the checkered flag or the steering wheel mentality to every race. So when everybody else is trying to amp themselves up and change their mindset to, all right, I don't have to take care of the car. He doesn't look at it like that anyway. He's like, all right, if I'm in second, I don't care. I want to win this race. And I, I group him like that. I group Chase like that, Kevin Harvick and Kyle Larson. I think they're, they're all like that. Um, so I'm going to say Kyle Busch wins the clash. Then mm-hmm. for the Daytona 500 poll, um, it, it, it didn't happen last year, but there's been so many years of Hendrick cars winning the poll. I'm going to say that Hendrick's newest signee, Kyle Larson, wins the poll for the Daytona 500 and puts his season off to a good start in qualifying. I do think that you're likely to see a Hendrick car on, on, on the poll. I'm going to say it's Larson. The car he's in was the old 88 car, which is, you know, one. It's like it was on the front row all the time the last several years between Dale Jr. and Alex Bowman. I think with a new number, it's still going to be fast. I say he wins the poll. As for the duels, give me Joey Logano in one. And I'm going to say, I want to say Danny Hamlin does not win his duel race. I think Brad Keselowski makes it a Penske sweep. So now I've got a route for them not to qualify in the same row because if they're in the same <laughs> duel now, I'm automatically yeah. wrong. Um, That's true. But if that if that if that is the case, then give me Harvick as the backup. And my pick to win the Daytona 500, I'm thinking Brad Keselowski's got a great shot, Ben. But I, I I'm going to be interested to see if Denny Hamlin can do something nobody's ever done and win three Daytona 500s in a row. As hard as it is yeah. to win one, he's won two in a row. Denny. Give me a reason not to pick you. I don't have one right now. I think Danny's going to win it again. Yeah, I think I think so. And I think I mean he he's obviously going to be very strong. You know, a couple of Cinderella type uh, winners that I would like to see come to the front. It'd have to be Kyle Larson, of course, trying to rebuild his career a little bit there. What a great way to start. But also, wouldn't it be cool to see Ryan Newman come back after his terrible crash last year? Yeah. Almost, what, 300 yards from the, from the victory to come back and, and win the 500 for Jack Roush. I just think that'd be so interesting. I'm I'm like you, though, in a way. I I, I think we're going to see a new face in victory lane this year. I said Harvick, but and that's, that's from a – maybe a statistical viewpoint, but I got to be honest with you. I'd love to see a brand new face, go to victory lane, have one of those Cinderella finishes, like, uh, say Trevor Bain, you know, Austin Dillon wanted a few years back yep. and just, that would be so much fun to, uh, to see it. And, and talking about the one twenty, uh, the one fifties, I keep saying one twenty five cause he did it for so long. <laughs> if you win at one twenty five now, Ben, it doesn't mean anything cause you still got 25 yeah. miles to go. That's true. Uh, Austin Dillon, I think, would be one of those that could could win one of the preliminary qualified yeah, races. And I would go with, uh, man, um, wow, I've just got to think a second. Uh, I, I kind of think I agree with you. I think maybe a Penske car like Brad or, or Joey yeah. could could also, because they got a lot of horsepower coming down the, the pike with Roush uh, Yates engines and uh, – so and of course you got ECR building for Austin Dillon. So I mean yep. they're, they're two of the best. And I, but you know what? The fun part about Daytona it's so hard to put your finger on what's going to happen because everybody is so close and so competitive. Anything in the world could happen, and that's that's the fun part. It is, and you know Brad Keselowski's won almost everything there is to win in NASCAR except the Daytona 500. Uh, same with Kyle Busch, and one of those guys very well may win it. But there are a lot of other guys like Mark Martin, Rusty Wallace. Terry Labonte, Bobby Labonte, Tony Stewart, Carl Edwards, who never won it. And so, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, you can talk yourself into saying they could win it this year, or you could just as easily say, 
Maybe they've already had their best shot. I do think that it'd be a neat story if any of those guys win it. I think Brad has a fantastic shot. I kind of didn't want to pick him because the only time I ever picked Brad to win a race, I picked him to win the Coca-Cola 600 once years ago, and he finished last, and his engine blew in like lap 10. So I took that as a sign that maybe I shouldn't do that and that I don't have my Jamie McMurray powers over Brad Keselowski. (laughs) So I'm not going to pick him just for that reason, but I do think he's going to be very good. Um, Brad is, is very driven, and he wants to win a second championship. I felt like he was the guy that nobody nobody talked about last year, man. Like, he was in the championship four, and I think if you polled people, they would say, all right, who was the championship four? Uh, well, it was Chase. Um, let's see. Was it Denny? Was it Harvick? Was it Logano? Like, nobody would say, oh, yeah, Brad Keselowski. Right. He finished second in points last year. He had a very good season. He won, you know, he won the big one at Charlotte. I think, um, you know, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how Brad does. I think if he wins the 500, it's going to catapult him to five or six wins this year. I'm going to be really excited to see, Ben, does Kevin Harvick have a year like he did last year? Or, you know, he's, he's in his mid-40s, or has he finally reached the point that Dale Jr. and Gordon and Stewart – and Johnson and Biffle and all those guys did when they, they reached that point in the forties and suddenly the wins go from semi-regularly to almost never. Yeah. I think, I think Kevin is still very much on top of his game and, and the fact that he won so many last year. And I think Kevin's one of those guys though, that if the, if the success doesn't come or they miss it by a little bit, you may not hear it from him right away. He was very classy in the way he handled himself after not making the playoffs the right. final four last time but something something switches inside of him when he's when he's down like that and he's going to come back i think he's going to have a great year uh just like he did in in uh 2020 but i think he'll he'll be one that will be in the final four again and you know it's kind of hard not to to pick you know kevin and maybe denny and some some of those really top guys that but you know, you you just don't know. That's what's the fun part about it. You got forty storylines that are going on each week. It, take take the Super Bowl for instance, or an NFL team. You got two teams battling each other on the field, okay? But when you're on a racetrack, you've got forty guys uh, who, who are battling each other at, at various levels or whatever. But you got to be the very best of those forty just to make it into the field in a cup. Uh, qualifying session anymore so the fun part is there's 40 storylines not two storylines so i think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out we got a long way to go but man isn't it exciting though that we're finally finally getting back to racing again i'm i'm ex- extremely excited i'm I'm ready to go uh, same here ben what if jamie mcmurray wins hey <laughs> he's in it nothing would surprise i'm me. just saying it, you know jamie wins and suddenly he gets a new ride and he leaves his <laughs> broadcast booth and <laughs> yeah you know re- resurgence in his career and all those things hires but me you know, uh, it, it'll be personal good luck really. charm yeah absolutely yeah yeah and, and i'm sure in victory lane he'll say well thanks to aaron burns for you know helping me get here it was all about aaron <laughs> not, not, not the tires not the crew not the car it was all aaron so there you know <laughs> things can happen you never know Hey man, I need to join the NMPA. I'm just trying to get that Joe Little John award. And I feel like if, I, if Jamie can win, if I can lead Jamie to enough Daytona 500 wins, maybe hey, I can get there one of these days. Let me let me say this to you: If Ben White can win the Joe Little John award, <laughs> Jamie McMurray could come back and win the 500. Okay, he's, he's in the field; he yeah. could win it. He's in he good equipment, man. It would not it would not shock me. I, I think Jamie would be a great story. Somebody leaving the booth 
to go run a one-off and win would be really cool. Seeing would Bubba be. Wallace driving the 23 car from Michael Jordan, what a huge win that'd be for the sport, too. I mean, wow. there's just that, so much you know, potential. Got to tell you, I didn't think of that one, but, I mean, hey, uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's really, really not. It's, you know, you got, again, you got 40 cars out there equally matched yep. under the right circumstances. I mean, it, it could very easily happen. So let's we'll see how it goes. But, I mean, just because you don't, hear their name every week so to speak that doesn't mean they don't have a shot at it because the daytona 500 is one of the most equal races there is as far as getting a new face to victory lane it could very well happen extremely well said ben so i think we've finally crossed the finish line on another episode it has been a blast as always chatting up with you man let's do it again soon oh absolutely man i cannot wait and we'll be talking to you about some current races and how things are going to go down in florida and we'll we'll be back to give you a lot of details oh yeah we're gonna be back with episode seven faster than carl edwards can backflip off his race car assuming he still can um for everybody who's out there listening hey throw a rating our way wherever you're listening whether it's on youtube apple podcasts whatever it is we'd love your feedback uh and in the meantime Thanks again for listening. For Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. We appreciate you enjoying another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Until then, so long for now, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.